0: The wheels are going to come off the bus a bit in terms of how people manage expenses. I think that they are likely to be much more willing to take outsized risks in how they spend money. Whether it is internally with employees and doing things like crazy perks, like let's pretend for a second that you want to give everybody at Spend Culture a full-time live-in nanny. That would be crazy, right? Like that would cause that would like double your headcount costs. Or more. Um, but I can see people who are flush with venture capital or flush with IPO money or just in a position like, you know, a Google where they can sit there and say, like, oh, this is going to be a great way for us to just keep people here forever. Yeah. Like, no, nobody's going to leave the company with a full time living nanny. And you'll see, you'll start seeing something probably not that extreme, but pretty darn close. Hi, I'm
1: Danny, and I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole for what we call spend culture. Welcome back to the Spend Culture Stories podcast. This is Nicole and today we are joined by John Brodsky, the country manager for Finder. Welcome, John. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Thanks, Nicole. I'm excited to be here.
1: You've had a portfolio of some really interesting brands throughout your career. Maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you into the role that you're in today.
0: Sure. So if I had to sum it up, it's probably just severe ADHD and being totally <laughs> unable to, to stick with one thing uh, for too long before I got like really bored. Um, yeah. <laughs> But I mean, if I was gonna, you know, if I was gonna answer a, a little bit more truthfully, like I, you know, I started my career in um, venture capital, and I did that totally by accident. You know, it's, it's one of those things that everybody in the world who's in a financial career they're like, oh, I want to be a VC or a private equity guy, and I had no idea what any of it meant. I was planning on being a ski bum after I graduated from college for ever, basically. With no real plans to do anything else. And I took an interview at a private equity slash venture capital fund just to sit there and tell them how awesome my best friend is, who really wanted the job. And yeah, yeah, so I and I had good grades. I, I went to a really good school. I'm pretty good at math and economics and stuff like that. So I got the interview and spent the entire time just telling them how awesome Lou is. Like, literally, they'd ask me like a brain teaser. They'd be like, okay, I'm going to dip this 10 by 10 cube in paint. And then like, how many actual cubes are covered in paint? And I would answer like, I really don't know. I'm kind of hungover. you get <laughs> coffee and we can just talk about Lou, who's coming in next? He, he will know the answer to this. Wow. Um, and that was my answer for everything. And they brought us both back. Or the final rounds. There, that was when all these financial firms did super days. I don't think that they still do that, mm-hmm. but they uh, they brought us both back. And I was sitting there at the bar with the the recruiter, and I was like, well, I mean, I I appreciate the free trip to New York, but why am I here? And they said, Well, you know, we really want Lou. We think Lou's going to be amazing at this job, and we thought it would like hurt his feelings and put him off his game if you didn't get to come with. And I was like, oh, okay. And then, I, and then I just asked like a basic question, like, what is venture capital? What is private equity? What do you guys do? And he explained it to me, and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And I spent the night basically watching CNBC uh, <laughs> to, to learn everything I possibly could about finance. Knew nothing about insurance, which is what that fund was focused on. But managed to parrot enough stuff from CNBC and also be unflappable under pressure, which was most of their interview techniques were, were trying to really break you down and see where you would cry. And that is just not something that was going to work on me. So I passed all the interviews and they offered me a job and unfortunately I blew, broke down crying uh, in the interview process. And didn't get the job, which uh, he 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 was uh, the best man at my wedding. We're still really close friends, and we talk like once or twice a week. And he has he has a lovely family in uh, in Washington. It worked out fine for him. Oh, good. So I did that, uh, and then I did that for a few years until I was like, oh, private equity just means I go in and I fire people for a living, and they're like, yeah, that's that's basically it. Um, and I was like, well, that sucks. <laughs> I don't really want to do that. And then I bounced around. I was a consultant for a while. Then I got hired to run allmenus.com and a few other startups. But All Menus was the one that really kind of took off and eventually sold to Grubhub. And from there, I jumped to running m and at 100 Flowers for a bit and also running their international business. And then I was so sick of corporate life, I was about to go back into a startup. I knew the people at Chicken Soup for the Soul. Uh, I tried to buy them a few times at 100 Flowers. And got to have a pretty good relationship with them and went to them to basically be like, hey, guys, fund my cool startup. And they were like, no, we're going to hire you. And it was very, very old school. They wrote a number on a piece of paper and shoved it across the table at me. And I looked at the number and I was like, that's a big number. I'm going to take this job. So I uh, sort of took it and was there for about five years. And we did a whole bunch of fun marketing hacks to grow it from 300,000 people to about a billion people that we reached. But I was getting antsy and my my wife and I, you know, lived nearby there, but we you know, we had a young child and I was basically like, okay, as soon as my kid is in school full time, I think I want to change jobs. Like this job is phenomenal because I get to spend a ton of time with my kid, but it's not intellectually fulfilling for me. I don't I don't particularly like self help. It doesn't resonate with me. Uh, to me, I'm, I'm very black and white. I'm either like, you did something or you didn't. And, and I don't really see the point of planning out to do the thing unless it's really big. And even then, like, I, I do the planning part when I'm 10 steps in uh, I realize that I need the plan. So I started looking around and, and I found the crew at Finder and they are amazing. And it's just like, this is going to be a multi billion dollar company. And yeah, I want to run a multi billion dollar company.
1: That's crazy. I love stories like this with people's careers because I think that a lot of us have set in our minds, you know, you're going to do one thing and that's how it's going to be. But I feel like you kind of just went with your opportunities and listened to your gut and did some cool stuff along the way that kind of led you to where you are now.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I think there's plenty of mistakes that you make along the way too while you're building that this type of career. There are certainly places where Many friends of mine who stayed in, in venture capital and private equity are incredibly well off. Some of the companies I worked with when I was a consultant had I stuck with them, uh, be a millionaire many times over at this point. So, I mean, you do make, you make a lot of mistakes when you do the bounce around path. Mm-hmm. That you don't necessarily need to make, uh, but you know, they get you to where you want to be at the end.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So from, uh, entrepreneur's perspective, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see early startup founders making when they're trying to cultivate their spend culture?
0: Yeah, this is a weird one because like the spend culture, like it you know, you say those words and it like makes you immediately think like, oh, like we're just like we're spending money in the wrong way. But the thing you really need to do is you need to hire the right people who believe that you're building something big. And they really need to be a cultural fit even more than they're a skill set fit. They need to go there and they need to just really believe in the mission. And once they do that, they spend the money as if it's their own. You don't have the people who are sitting there taking a crazy risk for saying, it's not my money or anything else that you do see in a ton of startups. I mean, I've even been in startups where I'm like, oh, you mean you're going to give me $10 million and you just want me to spend it? Okay, I'll go spend it. I, I can shop. You know, I like shopping. You got to go and find the people who believe in the mission so much that they are going to also keep you honest as an entrepreneur. They're going to sit there and say like, hey, John, you're chasing this like really shiny thing. You know, two years ago, that would have been Snapchat, right? Like everybody was sitting there being like, oh, how do I build like a massive Snapchat audience? now like, well, I don't know anybody who uses Snapchat. I don't know if you do. No,
1: it's long yeah. gone. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's, all, it's gone. And like people spent tens of millions of dollars chasing influencers on Snapchat and building like influencer based businesses there. And it's all gone. When I was at Chicken Soup, we fought really hard about going at that. And we're like, why? You know, this is just like a place where we're going to go and spend a lot of money. And we, we don't think we're going to end up any better off than we are today. We don't understand why this thing even really exists. And it sounds a little bit like old white men sitting around a table talking about other people, but in, in that case, we're right. So one of the ways that we do that here at Finder, we have five values. One of the ones that we really live by is one crew, which is that if you are here and you see a problem or you see something that can be improved, you just go and you do it. And you work with the people who are in charge of that to make sure it gets better really quickly. And it gives everybody a lot of ownership of everything we do at the company and helps them really feel like they are in charge of a lot of the ways that we make our spending decisions. And they will sit there. And I, I absolutely had people in meetings who are quite junior in the company who've been here like a week or two say, why are we spending money on this thing? Like, why is this worth it? And I love that because I, I sit there and I'm like, okay. Let me explain why I think that. And if you think this is BS and everybody else here thinks this is BS, then let's move on. Let's not do this anymore.
1: I like that. I like that, you know, everyone's opinion can kind of come in and you can have a conversation because I think it's true. Some organizations, I mean, I used to work and do consulting and people would just spend money and not even think twice about it. Whereas not all of us have been students and had to stretch a block of cheese for a week to feed yourself. So there's so many different perspectives on the money. And I think you're right. It all starts with the people and the mindset of the people that you're bringing into your organization. Because I think that's a difficult thing to change people's perspective. On money, so if you've got the right people from the beginning, that's a great foundation.
0: Yeah, it's, it's super key to everything we do here, and as a result, we we do tend to hire a lot of people who have been students who have stretched a block of cheese a week. Yeah, <laughs> and, we, and we have all done that too. I mean, I I certainly did that at one point in my career. I quit everything to go be a in in my mind a famous novelist. In reality, a novelist who sold like a hundred copies of a book. Mm-hmm. And that's that was pretty severe. I wouldn't call it poverty, but I was pretty poor.
1: Yeah, and I think it's times like those that really put you into perspective. And like you said, having those experiences coming into a company is, I think, a really good foundation for your spend culture. So we kind of talked about taking risks in your career and it's led to a lot of wins, but there's also missed opportunities and maybe some failures. Is there something that sticks out in your mind as your either biggest win or biggest failure in your career so far?
0: Hmm, That's a really hard one. There are a lot of little failures along the way. There are a lot of missed opportunities along the way. There's certainly times I've gone up to the plate. And I've taken a huge swing and just like thrown the bat and into the pitcher's face. Like forget about hitting the ball. Just yeah, just yeah. <laughs> really lost control of everything mm-hmm. um, on it. And yeah, I can think of dozens of projects that I worked on that ended in either they never launched or they had no revenue. I can think of deals that I spent tens of millions of dollars of other people's money on where we had to take a write down to zero within a year because I missed something in due diligence. And those failures are are pretty major. But the thing is, most of those failures were, none of those failures actually were career-ending for me. None of those sat there and put the brakes on my ability to continue in each of those companies because people don't look at individual failures and individual wins, they look at the basket that you bring to the table. So when you are, when you're there and you're, you know, you're a team player. Um, Yeah. I had those, those uh, M&A transactions that cost tens of millions of dollars that were just really bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did not work strategically. didn't work financially. Um, But I also had ones that cost $5 million that added $50 million to the bottom line. And I think that most of what people need to do in their careers is, make sure that they're marketing themselves on those, on those wins to the appropriate people without kind of overdoing it. Like if, if I just went around talking about those wins all the time, I want to sound like a one hit wonder, which is not what I've done. I mean, built a few pretty large companies at this point, but people are are looking for that basket and to know that on a net basis, they're going to come out ahead if they work with you. So I, I don't, Dwell too much on the the biggest failures. I mean, my biggest failures were definitely starting companies that went to zero because that sucks. And you are in a startup right now. You know how much that would really suck. Yeah, going <laughs> zero after putting in like a year or two of hard work or more. Yeah. And similarly, like I, I mean, I know I've generated billions of views per month, month in that chicken soup for the soul. I grown finder. Uh, I think it's like. 10x, 15x from when I started a year ago, year and a half ago, in terms of revenue and headcount. Not headcount, actually, headcount's about 5x. And at 100 Flowers, it grew top line revenue about 300 million through the acquisitions we did. And I made their international business go from 1 million to 40 million when I was running it. Wow. But all of those were like, I said I, 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 but that was really all we, we, we. There were tons of people involved in all of that. I just, got an outsized share of the credit.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point to make. For most people, there's got to be some failures that are mixed in with their wins. And yeah, it's not dwelling on them, but learning from those mistakes. And I think that's what helps you do better and find opportunities in areas that you might not have seen before because you've been through that. And again, it just gives good perspective. But yeah, I agree. It's not worth dwelling on things like that because it's in the past.
0: Yeah, you can't change it.
1: Exactly. So if you had to describe the spend culture of finder.com, what would it be?
0: So the spend culture here is really, really easy. Our mission in life is to help people make better financial decisions for themselves. So if we're not helping our staff make better financial decisions for themselves as well, and if we're not helping them understand what a better financial decision is by using Finder as a laboratory, we failed. So we do open book finance. We review uh, every single revenue line item. We talk about profitability on an overall basis, although I'm very careful not to talk about profitability on a person by person or team by team basis, mainly <clears throat> because that just causes infighting. You know, people will be like, okay, oh, yeah, I did more than you did. And that's not fair. It's, it's a team based approach. And when, when things are not growing as fast as we want, we're very honest about why. Sometimes it's because we missed a simple link somewhere and it cost us tens of thousands of dollars. And so we missed our growth target because somebody made a dumb mistake in the middle of the night. And we never really penalize people for that unless they keep doing it over and over and over, in which case they're either malicious or just really bad at their job. But yeah, uh, you know, we kind of we celebrate those failures. We explain what the impact is to revenue. You know, every single thing here is tied to revenue, and, and revenue is obviously directly tied to profitability. But our our expense base is pretty variable, so people can understand what our profits are going to be at almost any revenue tier internal, and they uh, it lets everybody say like, okay, this is like a good stable company. We're growing really really fast, but we're not growing because we're spending money like crazy people. And I make sure that that just goes to everyone. Know, they all they all sit there and they all say, oh, all right, I get why we don't want to spend $5,000 to go to this conference. We're not going to make $20,000 from relationships we build there. It's not worth it.
1: Awesome. I think that's a great approach. Do you have any kind of processes in place for managing and tracking spend at Finder.com?
0: Uh, we do. So we manage revenue in real time. Uh, the Our revenue reports are open to everybody who is part of the Finder crew. They can go and click on it. They can dive around. They can see where we are making money from partners where we're not. And all of that is updated every 15 minutes through APIs and then some other stuff. So that makes it really easy for people to get a status check that is much more visceral and much more meaningful to an individual person here than seeing what traffic did. Because traffic can go up 100x in an hour, that doesn't mean you got any extra money from it, which which I've lived through way too many times to need to learn that lesson again. (laughs) Uh, So we do have quarterly budgets where we set them, and we do set them very much in stone. We ask that, like, okay, everything you want to spend money on that is a new person, a conference, uh, whatever it is let's put it down here. And we are pretty generous with that. I mean, if you say like, Hey, what I want to do is go and spend $10,000 so I can take my team to a training event. That's fine. As long as we are planning for it and account for it. And nobody just sits there and says like, I want to do this thing. Let's do it. It has to be planned for bit in advance. And then we, we use concur to track expenses and we have our accounting software, which is zero, plus a wide variety of APIs and homegrown databases. And an accounting team that looks over our shoulders uh, quite regularly, she sits right across from me, our accounting team. So one-person team, but yeah. The, uh, and then we have credit cards for a few key employees mm-hmm. who can, uh, you know, and everybody's uh, spend limits are managed in real time.
1: That's actually a perfect segue into my next question. Um, Something that we've noticed, and even with a lot of our customers, are looking to give employees, company, credit cards. What do you think are the pros and cons of this? And what are some ways that you're able to put in internal controls to the credit card process with employees?
0: It's relatively easy to keep controls in a company our size. There's, I think, 60 of us total right now. And of that, five people have credit cards. Uh, and of those five people, only two of us have high limit credit cards. Everybody else has like $1,000, $1,500 for entertaining clients or lunches or things like that. That would be, that are pretty minimal. And, and we can move those around as need be. But we are pretty strict about what you can and can't expense at the company, which is mostly you can't expense anything. Yeah, you know, if it's not directly related to either a team building event that was like a thumbs up from somebody beforehand, or it's not one of our regular like we buy lunch for everybody every day. So if you missed lunch, then yeah, take my credit card, go buy lunch. Or if you miss like the ordering process or things like that. Everything else we do through invoicing and PayPal and regular kind of payment schedules and reimbursement schedules. And for employees who have Infrequent travel, we just have them expense everything. We give everybody a sixty dollars per day per GM, which is pretty generous. You know that covers everyone. Nobody sits there and says like, "Oh, sixty (laughs) dollars." You, I want to order the foie gras today. Yeah, (laughs) they want to do that. We're perfectly happy for them to put sixty dollars toward that meal and then spend the other two hundred dollars themselves. Yeah, but it goes back to spending the money as if it's their own. That's what we expect from people.
1: Yeah, honestly, it all just sounds very fair. Like I think that you obviously have an approach to the cards as well. It's not like you're just passing them out. And I know with us, I think we're at about 95 team members right now. So even at that, at a number that both of our organizations are at, it's still pretty easy to kind of mentally keep track. But I think obviously, as you grow and get more people, different kinds of processes have to come into place. But I think, like you said, it comes down to people treating it like it's their own money. And if that spend culture foundation is there already, then adding things like credit cards should just be a natural progression of that.
0: Yeah, I agree. And when you have somebody who abuses their credit card, it's really easy. You just take it away from them. That's it. And obviously, they may not want to stay very long after that happens, which is fine. Yeah. They weren't a fit.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Self-selection, I think, is is what that looks like to me.
0: Yeah.
1: So you've had a lot of experience uh, managing organizations with multiple locations and budgets. What were kind of the challenges that you found having to manage decentralized teams, especially when it comes to spend and things like that?
0: The number one challenge with decentralized teams in general, outside of spend, is time zones. We at Finder have employees in... Uh, if we look at Finder Global, which is about a three 400-person team, we operate in 80 countries. We've got staff in I think, 25 or 30. Wow. We have every single time zone in the U.S., including Hawaii, on staff. We have people in the Philippines. We have people in Europe. Uh, we have people in Australia. It is a nightmare managing time zones, and it forces you to get really good at documentation yes. because... There's not a chance that everybody's going to be able to be on the same calls at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, at least some of them being super bleary-eyed and angry <laughs> they're on that yep. call. Yeah. <laughs> what we've learned though is that when you start to document everything uh, and you document it really tightly and you have a reasonably long review process for budgets and for any other sort of documentation, everybody can come to an agreement pretty quickly where, where things break down. On a multi-locational or multinational business is when you have a central office that just sits there and says like, okay, this is how it's going to be. And everybody go march. And Mm -hmm. the people in Topeka are sitting there saying like, well, dude, we can't do that. That doesn't work. And there's a real reason why it's not that we're being difficult. So we give a fair amount of time for feedback, our budgeting process each quarter. Takes about a month. So we do quarterly OKRs and really quarterly kind of budget tune ups. We do also do an annualized budget process, but in the quarterly, we spend about a month going through. And we're not doing intensive meetings like for eight hours a day for a month. Obviously, that that would be insane and you wouldn't be able to grow. But we'll spend an hour or two a week for a month making sure that everything is set, everybody agrees, everybody's had time to think about the changes that we want to make. And then we can go and make them and everybody's already bought in. They've spent a fair amount of time getting comfortable with it already. The trick is just to never rush it and then to write down everything everybody promised to do with a check mark right next to it about whether or not they did it.
1: Yeah, I know. I walk around with a little pink notebook that's constantly just documenting things that I've heard. And yeah, I think just keeping people accountable, really, but having, you know, things set in place and having those conversations and being prepared. I think a lot of what we look at is proactive versus reactive spending. And it sounds like you guys are doing a good job of setting yourselves up to be successful with that. Thank you. We're trying. (laughs) What are some of your favorite tools that you use for tracking spend or that you've used in the past?
0: I don't like any of the tools that are there for tracking spend. So as we said, we currently use Concur for our expenses. We mm-hmm. usually use Expensify or Expensit or something else. Mm-hmm. We've gone through a few of them. And at the end of the day, I sit there, I'm like, well, my credit card statement is my expense statement. Can't I just load that into the accounting system? I'm use Zero for that right now, although we're going to switch to something a little more robust as we've grown. The can I just load it in there? Like, so why is the person in charge sitting here like spending two hours going through receipts? And the answer is, I actually don't. I just sit there and I, I put a giant pile of receipts. I send them off to our accountants and I'm like, can you guys deal with this, please? Thank you. I yeah. month, I'll be better. Bye. <laughs> um, so what we do that I really like is on the revenue side where we do real-time reporting down to the partner level. If we could just take that real-time reporting and plug it into... All the various tools and networks we use to recruit people to, you know, all of the places where we spend money, whether it's a credit card or just regular invoicing or rent, and just have that all update minute by minute and day by day, I would be ecstatic. Because then I could sit there and say at any given point in time, like, here's where we are in profitability for the month, you know, without having to guess at it and use a heuristic. So,
1: Yeah. And fair, like having a centralized place where all the data is and you can pull it in real time and you know that it's accurate and up to date and it's reflective of current state of your business. Definitely would make it easier. Nobody likes piles of receipts.
0: No, it's outdated. I get why there's an audit trail for that stuff, but yeah, it makes no sense.
1: So how do you continue your learning? Are there books that you like to read? Do you like to go to events? Is there a network of people that you follow? What have you found to be the most valuable for yourself?
0: There's definitely a network of people. There's people who I've worked with over the last 20 years. And I always try and sit down and have lunch with them or dinner or breakfast or coffee. Very rarely drinks, just because that's way more social. And not as much information transfer happens for either of us. But uh, I love talking to that network. And there's, there's several hundred people in that that I try to talk to on a regular basis. I often go and speak at events. Uh, many times I have no idea what it is that I'm supposed to be talking about You know, <laughs> in advance of that event, which gives me an opportunity to learn and find the industry experts either here in Finder or outside of it. Everybody's always looking for like the very clickbaity thing. Cause if you told people how you actually run a company, which is, Oh, well, we said we were going to do something and then we did it. Like that's, that's not very interesting.
1: No, <laughs>
0: That's actually what you do. Uh, yeah. So I learn an awful lot from that. And then also from the feedback I get from those events where people will come up to me afterwards and give me tons of comments on what I said and tell me like, and they'll, they'll really point the way to new places I can learn. And then I read, I would say like one to two books a week. Oh, wow. um, some of them are business books, Although I tend to shy away from most business books because they are really in that self help category of like, hey, you're going to grow a great business and you're awesome and you don't need to know anything. Yeah. Um, you know, or like all you need to do is work hard, which is patently false. Yeah. <laughs> I, is, I wish it, I wish that was all you had to do, but the I tend to read an awful lot of psychology books. I read a lot of random things. Like if I think that there's something wrong with how I'm selling or how some of the sales team is selling, I'll go read a book on like, here's how like dime store psychics uh, do cold readings. Like here's their manual. And I'll just go read that because that type of stuff is filled with amazing psychological hacks. And then there you know, fiction, nonfiction. Uh, and I have a five-year-old, so... 100 children's books. Lots of Pete the Cat. So much Pete the Cat. (laughs) So much scary squirrel. Yeah. I just really want the squirrel to get some self.
1: I think that's a great point to make, especially for people even just getting into the industry themselves and looking for resources. There are so many business books out there that are very preachy and very, like you said, self help based. And I think that a lot of learning can come from really narrowing in on a specific thing that you're trying to develop or. I know for myself, I've been reading a lot of psychology books too, because at the end of the day, if we understand people, it's going to help us regardless of the role that you're in, I think do a lot better. And yeah, I think networks too, it can't really replace that, that human contact and having those people that have had their own experiences in life. So you've got a great collection. I would love to be able to read two books a week. I think two books a month would even be a stretch for me, but it's been a goal to try and read more. So uh, you've inspired me.
0: I have a three hour per day train commute that makes this super easy to do.
1: Okay, well, there you go. Now I don't feel as bad, but uh, still very much feeling inspired to take on my New Year's resolution of reading a little bit more.
0: Yeah, and then to be fair, I'm very liberal about what I consider a book. An audiobook is a book. A hundred page, like, mini thing, to me, is a book. So I like not everything is 700 pages. Yeah. It's something that's interesting and interesting enough to me. for me to want to make it through. And I also, I mean, if you get like 20, 50 pages into something and it's like, no, you really are your best self every day. Like I just, I leave it on the train.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Someone else can pick that up.
0: Yeah. It's always gone by the time I get there.
1: (laughs) So how do you think the state of spend culture is going to transform in the next five years and how it's going to impact organizations? You know, I think that really
0: depends a lot on what your economic outlook is. If you're trying to look five years ahead, you know, we're in the financial services industry. We see some signs that there could be a a pretty severe recession in that time period. And If there is a severe recession, uh, spend culture is not going to be a culture. It's going to be you just can't spend money, stop spending money. That's what happened in 2008. That's what happened in 2001. Everybody just clamped down and stop spending money entirely. And that, to me, is very scary. That does more to destroy most businesses than I think people would like to acknowledge. You know, They're they, they battening down the hatches, and I view it as just digging a hole for yourself to yeah. go die in. There's certainly places where you need to cut expenses if that came to pass, but you don't need to just get rid of everything. You still need to spend money and still need to experiment to continue to grow and to continue to have a, a chance at really being where you want to be as a company. I think the the economy is going to just keep going fine for the next five years or, or accelerate growth. I actually think it's going to go very much the other way. We've had such a long period of growth since the last major recession that I think the wheels are going to come off the bus a bit in terms of how people manage expenses. I think that they are likely to... Be much more willing to take outsized risks in how they spend money, whether it is internally with employees and doing things like crazy perks. Like, let's pretend for a second that you want to give everybody at Spend Culture a full-time live-in nanny. That would be crazy, right? Yeah. Like, that would cause that would like double your headcount costs. Yeah. Or more, um, but I can see people who are flush with venture capital or flush with IPO money, or just in a position like, you know, a Google, where they can sit there and say like, oh, this is going to be a great way for us to just keep people here forever. Yeah. Uh, nobody, nobody's going to leave the company with a full-time living nanny. And you'll see, you'll start seeing something probably not that extreme, Yeah. but pretty, pretty darn close. Oh yeah. So I think we can go of two ways. And, you know, here at Finder, we're preparing more for the downside case. And we are for the upside case, but we we are preparing for both. Well,
1: I think that's great. And I think that's the biggest thing is to obviously be positive, but be prepared for both. And yeah, not be doing ridiculous things with spending. Although I have seen some things pretty close to giving everyone their own live-in nanny. So who's to say what we might see in the next few years?
0: I would love for a finder to be able to give everybody a live-in nanny. But to be fair, I think there's only like six people, including me, here who have kids. Yeah. (laughs) It wouldn't be that bad of an expense. And I'm pretty sure that my wife, who is a stay-at-home mom, would be really offended.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I think here at Procurify, if we offered doggy daycare, that might be about the equivalent of giving those nannies. But yeah, it's interesting. And I'm curious to see where things go. But like you said, the kind of the spending trends that we've seen could put people in some trouble.
0: Yeah, hopefully it doesn't. But that's what companies do when they're looking for a way to attract more talent. Mm -hmm. Uh, Somebody goes crazy and then a lot of other people go crazy following them. It's great for companies like ours that actually manage this pretty tightly because all you have to do is say, okay, I'm going to find somebody else. And then I know in two years, there's going to be about 300 people at that company that I can go and recruit really heavily.
1: Totally. (laughs) I work in talent acquisition as well. So I definitely (laughs) see where you're coming from on that end. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I have really enjoyed speaking with you and learning about your experience and your perspective on things. And I know that this will be a very entertaining podcast for our audience to listen to. Sounds
0: good. Well, I really enjoyed being here today, Nicole. And keep it up. And hopefully you're, you're a skier and you enjoy going to Whistler and stuff, Given where you live.
1: You know what? I haven't been to as many mountains as I should for someone who has lived in Vancouver their entire life. But just like the books, it's on the list of things to do. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Spend Culture Stories podcast, sponsored by Procurify. If you'd like to learn more about your Spend Culture, take our quiz at spendculture.com.